What, what is the one thing that I think could be improved about healthcare? I mean, it's certainly access, it's certainly insurance issues, it's facility issues, it's this and that. But if we could get back to making the patient the focus, the focus of healthcare. Well, 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 hello and welcome to another episode of the MedChat Podcast, a quote-unquote spirited discussion on the business of healthcare. I am your host, Michael Bennett. We will be talking with all of the players from the C-suite to the capital providers and the physicians to the policymakers. We're going to try and deconstruct this $4 trillion, 20% of our GDP beast of an industry, and we'll pepper in a little fun and maybe a libation or two along the way. Please enjoy another episode of MedChat. Our guest tonight is Dr. A.J. Mencius, a 51-year-old renowned hand, wrist, and elbow surgeon who currently serves as the president of South Bend Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, a partner practice of Ortho Alliance. Dr. Mencius is widely recognized for his expertise in treating complex hand, wrist, and elbow injuries, particularly in high-level athletes. He holds the position of Director of Hand Surgery for the University of Notre Dame Athletic Department and serves as a consultant to major orthopedic companies. Outside of his medical career, Dr. Mencius is a man of many passions. He's an avid golf and workout addict at Orange Theory. He also has a keen interest in watch collecting and is a big fan of Dave Matthews Band, Coldplay, and old-school hip-hop. Dr. Mencius loves to travel with his wife and children to the beaches of 30A in Florida, occasionally indulging in cigars and old fashions. Additionally, he has a great appreciation for the business side of medical medicine, particularly the intricacies involved in managing a large private practice orthopedic group. So we've got a lot to cover, so let's dig in. AJ, how are you doing? I'm great, Mike. Doing great. Um, Thanks for having me. This is exciting. This is uh, knowing what we're going to talk about. I'm excited about it, stuff that I'm passionate about. One of the things we have to cover, since this is a spirited discussion on healthcare, uh, are you participating in a adult beverage right now? I am. I got a little Basil Hayden's right here. Mm. I don't have my big ice cube because I can't find my ice cube mold. I have a bunch of tiny little ice cubes, so it's still working. It's still working All good. Right. So, well, getting into the business side of things, yeah, uh, we'll we'll get there later. But some of the things I like to do on these is get uh, have people get to know you a little bit better. So, just uh, throwing it out there, books that you're reading right now, or maybe a book that you recently read that you would recommend to to our our listeners. Um, I'm really into the Navy SEALs. I don't know why I. I like I like their attitude, which is identify a problem and go straight for it as fast as you possibly can. And so I kind of I like that attitude. It's kind of what I try to do instead of overanalyzing, avoiding it, going around it. I just go for problems. So there's a book called No Easy Day. It's by mm-hmm. Mark Owen. I uh, was involved in, um, you know, um, taking out bin Laden. Uh, when it occurred in Pakistan. And so it's called No Easy Day. It's a fantastic book. So the other thing I like to ask is, what is the best thing under $100 that you've bought in the last you know, 30, 60 days? Mm. Well, I've been having a lot of foot pain recently. So um, talked to some people I know, and they recommended UFOS, O-O-F-O-S footwear. And uh, as it turns out, our Notre Dame training staff and some of our athletes wear UFOS footwear. So I got some UFOS recovery clogs 
and I okay. wear them around the house. And it has revolutionized my foot pain. So awesome. $79 online. You can buy it. Ufas footwear. I love it. We do not have a promo code for that yet, but I will link okay. uh, Ufas in the show notes uh, so along with the, the book recommendations. No, no, maybe they'll be our first sponsor. Who knows? Absolutely. Uh, so I want to get into the business side of things here because that is really what you like to talk about and you're focused on. Uh, give us a background of of what you do exactly at South Bend Orthopedics, what your role there is, and then uh, tell us a little bit about the practice. Um, well, I, you know, I've been at South Bend Orthopedics since I think 2004. So I think this is my 19th year there. Um, for several years, I really wasn't involved in, in leadership of the group, but Maybe uh, 10, 12 years ago, I got really heavily involved in the leadership of our group, joined the executive committee, and a few years back was elected um, president uh, of our group, managing partner of our group. Um, and so really the day-to-day -day operations I'm heavily involved with, our, our management team, and really making heavily involved in HR decisions, financial decisions, strategic decisions, uh, relationship in the community type decisions and just day-to-day -day partner issues and business issues. So, you know, but also at the same time, I, I try to be a full-time doctor, which I am, and, and see patients and do surgery and manage my own personal practice. So it's it's a juggling act, And um, but I enjoy it. I, I, I never thought that I would enjoy the business side of medicine as much as I do, because I think it's important and you have to be engaged as a leader and it is a full-time job, so you have to look at it as a sacrifice because it's a full-time job before my full-time job of being a surgeon and after my full-time job of being a surgeon. So it is starts early and ends late, but it's uh, it's uh, the price that we pay. But I but I love doing it. So our group's been around for seventy-five years. Um, we have uh, really been through um, all of the healthcare. Um, I think ups and downs over the years, but, and, you know, we persevered through COVID. We didn't, we didn't lose any of our employees. In fact, we made the decision to keep all of our employees and take care of them and do what we needed to do because we knew COVID eventually um, would subside, or at least the pandemic would subside. And we would still need to see the influx of patients that was going to occur when that, when that happened. So, we have all the specialties in musculoskeletal medicine. We have neurosurgery. We also have a plastic surgeon. Um, we have anesthesia. We own um, our hospital with a, a, another partner. We own our surgery center with Ortho Alliance. Ortho Alliance is a, a recent transaction we did. So hopefully we can get into that. But our group is very strong and solid. But we've, you know, we've encountered challenges, and those challenges became extremely apparent during COVID. And um, and I think they will continue in healthcare and for private practice groups. Um, it, it's unavoidable. So let's talk about that. So I do want to get to the um, the private equity group that uh, that you just did a deal with, and and talk about the genesis of that, and uh, dig dig really deep into that. Um, but the challenges during COVID. Can you talk about those from kind of the minutia all the way to the major stuff? And what you what you had to go through, and kind of uh, how you came out of it. Well, you know, I'll, I'll just start with the the virus itself and the illness. 
um, you know, we did um, have several of our partners and our employees really did with the initial COVID surge became quite sick. I mean, it, so it, it was, it, it is, and it was a real disease back then. And the thing was that, that the information that was coming um, from the authorities was changing every minute of every day. And we were not equipped to manage that. Um, we had frequent meetings and even to the point uh, of, should we close? Should we not close? Well, we, we need, we need people, patients need to be taken care of for their emergent problems. But so we were able to survive based on really emergent problems, things that needed to be fixed. Um, and it, it allowed us to continue to stay, you know, semi-busy and, and semi-solvent. Um, but the one thing that really was tough, we were not used to having, we, we weren't having the same cash flow and the same revenue that we were used to, but we made the conscious decision to keep all of our employees. And several businesses, healthcare businesses in town chose not to do that. Um, the other thing is the um, the amount of, um, I think, work hours that our administration had to put in, you know, synthesizing all the information and giving us the best advice possible. It, uh, it was very tough on the system when we clearly, as a healthcare community and as a healthcare community, um, as a country, we, we weren't ready to deal with a pandemic, even though we've talked about it many times, you know, it, it just historically, there have been many pandemics, but surprisingly, we were not ready to deal with it. So then COVID, here, the other thing, you know, from a healthcare, um, running a private practice, owning a private practice, it did affect insurance companies. It, it, affected, it affected how they paid us, how we submitted bills to them. There were delays, delays, delays. So not only was our revenue because of our volume being down, uh, being was it low and, and affected, <clears throat> but the insurance companies were affected. And then, and then people just, you know, lot we lost over the year. I mean, just over these last two years, just the volume of people wanting to be in healthcare co completely dropped off. And then what happened? Yeah, go ahead. But you know, and that after that, that created a wage war between private practice groups and hospitals and large healthcare systems. And you know who's going to win that wage war. Um, and then that created an artificial elevation of salaries, which is truly unsustainable. So it's yeah. uh, the minutia of it is unbelievable. And, and, and it was a real disease. It was a real problem. We weren't prepared for it, but it will have lasting effects that I, you know, part of those lasting effects um, convinced, you know, was probably one of the convincing things that led us down this, you know, private equity ortho alliance transaction. So, yeah, I don't have the uh, the alternative or the equal stat for this, but uh, for physicians, but we uh, we had a present today presentation today by a consultant, and they said that there is two hundred forty five thousand unfilled nursing positions in the U.S. right now, uh, and you know the wage war that you mentioned. One of the consultants would say, well, these hospital systems were bringing in nurses and paying them double, triple their regular wages for their, their full-time employees. And then the FTE started going, well, why are we not getting paid that? And so there was this constant battle and then the burnout and just hospitals sometimes are not the best places to work. 
Uh, they were also talking about scheduling where a nurse would work from three to 11 and then they'd say, be back here again at seven in the morning. And it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. And so, no. you know, uh, and I'm not blaming hospital systems. There is a million things that a hospital CEO and a C-suite is thinking about from, from uh, how to uh, take care of patients the best to whether or not they should have the French fryers on in the cafeteria at three o'clock to serve healthy food or not. So there's a, there's a, a lot that they're going through, but you mentioned that COVID experience and some of the challenges that you faced there being a catalyst for pursuing private equity. Can, to the extent that you're comfortable, can you kind of walk us through how that came to, came to be? Private equity. Um, so, in the in July, well, we're going to get into reimbursements in detail year, later. So we I know that that's a, a, a group a of MSO of for those that don't know what that is—a management services organization called Ortho Alliance. Ortho Alliance was a group that started in Cincinnati with a large orthopedic group called Beacon Orthopedics, and um, they approached us, and we knew some of the people. There were some relationships there between some of my partners and some of the other doctors about. Hey, were you, are you interested in a partnership? Ortho Alliance is backed by Revelstoke, um, a private equity group out of Colorado, Denver, and you know, very good reputation. Other healthcare platforms, you know, and and, and the big thing that Ortho Alliance um, sold us on, and I believe it to be uh, so very true in talking to their other partner practices, is they would give us the support, the infrastructure, the data analytics the capital that we needed to compete on a big time scale. And it, it, and it, we, we really liked them because they had a regional play, really acquiring and managing groups in Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana, and, and, and hopefully one day in maybe Southern Michigan. But um, they really wanted to bring on and acquire successful groups that just needed tweaking, that needed a little, a little rigor and, and, and a little discipline. And, and I thought that our group, we really needed a little more rigor, a little more discipline, but we also needed infrastructure. We needed support. And in today's world, healthcare is, is, is consumer centric. It's about consumerism. And uh, private practices are not based on providing and focusing on customer experience, patient experience. And I know that a larger entity can do that. Um, and And also there's this concept of omni-channel healthcare. I mean, you know, uh, CVS, Walgreens, Best Buy, Amazon, or have already created their own healthcare systems. Some of them are partnering with a large health or, or large insurance companies. So for our group to compete on that scale, and for a lot of other reasons, we thought that this private equity transaction into the Ortho Alliance MSO made a lot of sense. And, um, and, and the whole goal of Ortho Alliance is to not affect is not to affect our clinical practice. It is to allow us to continue to provide high quality care without all of the business concerns and business issues that we have that we just cannot. They continue to they continue to get piled onto us, Mike, and and it, it's impossible to keep up with it because at heart we're doctors. So right. Yeah, and you, you touched on that earlier, really wearing two hats, right? So you're you're working the business side of your business because this is not a set it and forget it type of a business. This is something that needs attention, that needs management, that needs leadership. Um, it is something that needs business development. 
Uh, and then you also have to go and do surgeries um, and all of the other things that you're you're doing. And so being able to shed some of that stuff to where you can concentrate on providing care and doing surgeries, I, I assume was a big part of the reason that you did that. Yeah. And, 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 and those of us involved in leadership, those of us on the executive committee and certain boards that were on, we just knew we couldn't keep up and, and, and like it or not, with you know with the fact that our reimbursements are dropping the only way that uh, you know we can keep up and and continue to be productive members of our group and productive members of the medical community is to work a little harder in medicine and um and then you know the other thing that um this ortho alliance transaction helps us to do is to keep i mean it requires different leadership not the leadership of of medical groups from the 90s and early 2000s but ever evolving leadership ever there's so many new concepts that pop up every day and things that we you know as physicians can't keep up with it really requires leadership of a, of a different type quickly adapting to the business landscape and just quickly responding to different changes in regulations and rules that that happen every single day every single week every single month and it is it is not our forte in doing that uh, it, it it, it is the forte of a, of a business organization. That is their, their function is leadership in, in the business world. And so um, it's, to me, it was the best um, decision we could make to keep our group surviving and thriving for another 75 years. Okay. We'll get back to this, but yep. talk to me about, or talk to our audience about the business of providing care as a private practice. And so how does it start? How does it uh, evolve? I understand that you just took a big step with private equity, which is going to hopefully supercharge your business, but give us kind of a day in the life of running a private practice. Well, I want to go back to what, the way it was when I started in 2004. We had paper charts. We had a single bill sheet. Um, we had a, a folder we'd open up. It was all, it was all right there. There were no technology glitches. I don't even think we had Wi-Fi in our office. So it was very simple. Um, we'd see a patient, I dictate on a dictaphone, I'd write something on a piece of paper and that was it. That was the encounter. Now the encounter starts and everyone experiences this in healthcare. You come in, you got to fill out all the same paperwork that you did a month ago because there's new regulations. We got to scan your insurance card, scan your, scan your ID. Then you come back and see the patient, you, you see the physician who may be behind uh, because their schedule is more full than it likely should be. Um, but then we have a medical assistant that enters all the, the health data that may or may not apply to the reason they're visiting me because those are the rules that are now in place. And then after all that, and you enter everything and you still are not fully um, EMR, electronic medical record, you're still using a lot of paper for an EMR, then the doctor comes in. The doctor comes in and you either have a choice to enter all the work in the computer yourself, which means you can't talk to the patient or examine the patient or even face the patient, or you dictate into the cloud, which then puts it into your electronic medical record, or you have a scribe, which is what we have. And scribes are, are, uh, are, are extremely important in allowing us to see patients efficiently still give them the experience which they deserve, which is to examine them and talk to them. 
because it's about patient care and, and, and patient experience and giving them the best care. And I don't know how to give great care while looking at a computer. I just don't. Uh, but it is our mandate to use EMR because of a concept known as meaningful use, which there are a lot of good points to meaningful use. And that was set in place by um, you know governmental agencies. But I do believe in some of the good points of meaningful use. But a lot of the rules and stuff that we do um, uh, are because of that. And then if I decide someone needs an MRI or a surgery, then we have to go through an authorization process. Before we would prescribe or order an MRI or do surgery, it was quickly approved. By the insurance company. Very companies. quickly. By the insurance company, by the payers. And now there are so many hoops to jump through. And, and just speaking selfishly as a physician that's been in practice for 19 years, I would like to believe that a patient believes and understands that I would likely know and have the knowledge base to decide whether or not an MRI is required. And unfortunately, there are a lot of rules that say when or not an MRI is required. And sometimes you have to order therapy when, in my opinion, it's not indicated. Sometimes you have to do a bunch of stuff. So, And then there's this thing. I wrote this down because it's one of the most ridiculous portions of medicine in my belief. It's called a peer-to-peer -peer review. And when I order an MRI, I sometimes have to call a physician that's often not an orthopedic surgeon. In fact, the majority of times is not an orthopedic surgeon and justify why I want to order an MRI. And I do know physicians in the world that are friends of mine that say, friends of mine that say, I'm not going to ever do a peer-to-peer. -peer. So guess what that means? Their patient isn't going to get that MRI because that won't, unless you do that peer-to-peer, -peer, it won't get done. And in 19 years, or it's actually been a, a, an occurrence only really over the last five to seven years, I've never had anyone desire, um, anyone reject my order for an MRI. So it's just a hoop you have to jump. Mm -hmm. So it makes it complex. And I don't know when I'm supposed to do a peer-to-peer, -peer, but I find, a time, I find time. And, um, and, then, and then you same thing with surgery. And then there's sometimes we do surgery on people, the surgery gets canceled the day up because we actually didn't get the, the authorization to do the surgery for an urgent problem. There, there is no explanation for that. I can't understand when someone has a, a significant injury that affects their quality of life and their ability to work, why I would get denied the ability to do that surgery. It makes no sense to me. And it happens a lot. It happens to me once a week. Today, it happened <laughs> to me twice. I don't want to... You, you, yeah. I don't want to make insurance companies out to be the bad folks or the payers nope, out to be the I bad folks, you. but um, are they? I mean, is this, is this, uh, is this an issue that is the payers that are just trying to save money? Um, or is it that they really just don't trust the doctors to be ordering the, the procedures that their patient, they feel their patients need? I mean, it seems like, seems like you guys are the best people to be recommending a certain procedure, an MRI, a surgery, right? You're not doing it to uh, because you want to you want to effectuate the best care for your patient, right? And to have to go through all these hoops, I mean, it's it's frustrating just hearing you talk about it. I would say, Michael, that I I know insurance companies have a job to do, and what they're trying to do is prevent overutilization, and I get it. I think that if if you're being a good steward of resources, which I most 
of us believe that the cost of healthcare is too high, so we're trying to respect it. But I'll just give you an example. I would think that there is some worry, and I get it, that we own our own MRI machine. We act uh, over, over that, which says, man, these guys, are they overutilizing? We know they get, they, you know, they make money off their MRI, but the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons came out with a study that shows physicians that own their own ancillary services like an MRI do not overutilize. In fact, we, on average, order less MRIs than those that don't because we're purely respective of that fact. So, and insurance companies have a business to do like I do, and I respect that. I, I do. Um, but it's, it's, multi, it's multifaceted. I, I've heard of um, a concept known as a, a gold card. Um, it's, for lack of a better term, Surgeons that have shown appropriate utilization over their careers have had good results, have had good patient outcomes, have, have had high patient satisfaction, can eventually, I, I know this concept is occurring and it may occur at some point, then maybe we get a free pass to know that our tests are ordered appropriately, our surgeries are, are, are prescribed appropriately, which I think is a great thing. If you track correct, yeah, you know? Yeah, and, and, and I I, it seems like with um, uh, value-based uh, reimbursements that you would see outcomes and then you could go to that physician and go, well, he's got a very good track record. He ordered this MRI, he ordered this surgery. Now the patient is on the mend and we're seeing them left off and then having them come in two or three appointments, do PT, do some other sort of uh, treatment that doesn't solve the problem. And then you end up back at the same spot, but you had to go around and around and around before you got to that outcome. And I hear what you're saying about the insurance companies having a, a responsibility and, and understanding that there is a lot of Medicare uh, fraud in the in the healthcare uh, industry. And so uh, I could see both yeah, sides, yeah. but you know, I'm talking to you right now and uh, I, I feel your pain and it's it's a rabbit hole that you could go down very very deep, but uh, you know you're on the front lines and you're talking about it and, it and it makes a lot of sense that you shouldn't have to go through that. Let alone you know we can get into this you know all the coding changes and and the reimbursements and maybe this is a good opportunity to get into that because you know that is we I have physicians that live around me. Uh, I I'm in the business of healthcare real estate. Uh, we have a lot of doctors as our tenants and physician groups. And this is the number one thing when I actually sit down to have a dinner or a drink or coffee with a doctor, it's reimbursement rates. And the fact that, you know, the, the education that you guys continue to get, the experience that you can continue to get, the improvement in your outcomes over time, but yet your reimbursement for what you're doing is going down. So let's, let's talk about reimbursements. What is broken about it? It's a broken system of how, of how, you even negotiate a contract. I, I think that we used to believe as doctors that if you collect data to show that your outcomes are better, your reimbursement will stay will stay up. And and what I've realized is even in a single state, the reimbursement for one procedure is different virtually in every township, in every town, in every region. And, and and I don't even I, I don't even know and and that's just because we as doctors talk I I don't know how that could possibly be but um, the the thing is I don't think doctors unless you have a robust business office 
and a robust group behind you working on negotiating your contracts and making sure they're maximized. Um, unless you have that infrastructure, most doctor groups are just going to accept the contracts they have. And the, the unfortunate part of that is if your contract stays the same and inflation goes up and wages go up and your cost of business goes up, it is an untenable situation. And a lot of times I've found myself in, in negotiating with insurance companies. Again, I'm not trying to make them out as the bad, bad guy, but when I try to explain that our expenses are going up and it's just harder to do business, oftentimes it falls on deaf ears. I would think that if, if a group is doing a good job, we have patient satisfaction, we have great outcomes, we should be rewarded for that. And, um, and oftentimes, I'll give you an example. How I, I fix a lot of broken bones. You would think that when I put a plate and screws in someone's bone, you would assume that that plate and screws is a necessary portion of the procedure. It is absolutely necessary, but yet there are insurance plans that don't pay for those implants. So I don't know how we can remain a positive, viable entity if even the basic implants that we put in people are considered unnecessary and they won't pay for them. I, I mean, what that is, that is just so, it's just so counterintuitive. We're trying to do our best job to take care of patients, get them back to work so that they can be productive members of society. Yet it's a very real struggle. But what's broken is everything about it, Michael, everything about it, how we negotiate, how, how, Things are, are paid to us. Are they paid in a timely manner? You know, if, for example, I authorize, get a pre-authorization for some CPT codes, codes that I think I'm going to do, yet I do something different because when I get in there, it's the opposite of what I plan to do. Your case may be denied because you didn't, and it may or may not, you may or may not get paid for the work you do because you didn't pre-cert for the right code. Uh, it, it just, it gets old and it is fatiguing to doctors and it leads to burnout and it leads to people just leaving the medical field. So, um, I don't know. There's just so many things about it that are broken and maybe doctors are blame are to blame too. I mean, I, I don't know the answer to the question. Um, um, but the, a very large portion of the system is broken. So why is healthcare so expensive? Uh, you know, if you go into a hospital with uh, a strep throat and they have to keep you overnight and you don't have insurance and they bill you the next day and it's $12,000 because you stayed a night in the hospital, why is it cost? Why, why does that happen? Well, a hospital has rent to pay. They have a ton of staff to pay. They have a ton of overhead to pay. Uh, their supply chain is expensive. They just have a huge amount of overhead, and um, but 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 also they're in the they're in the business of making money, and um, what people don't understand, and 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 I try to explain this even to my wife or friends that are not in healthcare, you know, outpatient everything is much cheaper than inpatient anything. I try to explain that to them, and then why it's the same doctor, it's the same healthcare you're getting, it's just. That person doesn't have insurance. They have to go to a hospital. This person can go to an outpatient clinic and get the same care. Um, and it's three times more expensive as a hospital. It's just the hospital overhead's expensive. 
there is just so many more steps and so much more complexity to inpatient hospital care. And just, and, and you know, knowing what I know about hospitals, because we do own uh, our own hospital, the regulations that go into running a hospital are unbelievable. And so I think those regulations, those rules, and all the steps and people that are put in place to make sure every rule is followed, every I is, is dotted, adds cost to healthcare. Um, and, you know, truth be told, the same procedure at an outpatient facility is one-third the cost of, an, of a hospital. Even if you do it as an outpatient, if you center versus the same procedure, me doing the same procedure in a hospital, it literally costs the healthcare system three times as much. And I, I, I don't, other than overhead, I don't know what else it could be unless there is an extreme desire to just have a much larger margin. I, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. And I, that's one of my big things. I hate talking about margin when I talk about caring for people, but it's a fact, you know, it, it, it I, I guarantee business people at a hospital talk about margin. They have to. And, um, but that that is that's one big factor. Hospitals are just more expensive to run, and I know this because we own a hospital. So we've talked uh, a little bit about things that aren't working. What's what is working like within our current system? What what's positive about kind of your day to day interaction in the healthcare industry? Um, for personally, for me, what's positive is. I love talking to patients and patients in general love talking to me. Um, they like to interact with their doctor. And in the United States of America, we can provide the greatest care ever, um, ever seen by people, ever seen by patients for very complex problems that 19 years ago we couldn't fix. We didn't have a good answer for. And we're very good at getting from an orthopedic standpoint, getting people back quicker with less risk, more safety, less pain, less use of opioids. I mean, one big thing um, in healthcare is that there has been an extreme focus on the opioid epidemic, which has made each one of us a better doctor because um, we just prescribe less pain medicine and, and, and that's taking better care of patients. The research and science in the United States and in the, and in the medical centers, the academic medical centers like the Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, um, you know, Stanford, Yale, Duke, the research that our universities are doing, and even the research that our group is doing, is is literally improving healthcare. So there's a lot of good things about healthcare, and it's still a very noble profession. It's still a very rewarding profession. But you know, one of the big things is there's a lack of doctors, and why uh, we talk about this. You know, we've started a, a task force in our community. Uh, with healthcare leaders, and it's basically called a healthcare, you know, education initiative, really designed about, really designed around trying to increase the workforce in healthcare. But one of the big things we've talked about is health. The healthcare industry has lost its its respect. It used to be a very noble profession. For some reason, it doesn't have the same level of respect. And when someone says, "Oh yeah, I'm in healthcare. I'm a doctor." It doesn't, it just doesn't, it, it's just not the same as it used to be. My father was a physician. And when I started, it, it, it really meant something different, I think, to the public than it means now. Why it, do you think that is? I think there's been a lot of fraud and abuse in healthcare, and people have taken advantage of the system. So that's given it 
a bad name. Doctors are tied in with healthcare. When people hear when when in general people hear healthcare, they hear expense. They hear high cost of healthcare. They equate me and and my colleagues with being part of the high cost of healthcare. But what I can tell you, and, and this would be a fact, that if you have a procedure done by me, I am probably the lowest cost of that procedure in general. Um, there's a lot of other things. The cost of healthcare for physicians, we can overutilize and overprescribe and, and just overuse and order, order too many tests when you don't need those tests. So that we do in our on our side contribute to the overutilization and increased cost of healthcare, um, but I think the world and lay people not in in medicine believe that medicine is a very expensive proposition. I think they believe that there's greed behind it, and that the foundation of medicine is not as, for lack of a better term, as pure and as holistic as it used to be. And part of it is because medicine has become a business. It's become a business, right? It's a business, and, right. and well, that, yeah. So that's what you. I mean, when you when you're having as a physician to wear both hats, and and you know, entrepreneurs out there wear a lot of hats, right? And to some extent, you're an entrepreneur, right? And you're you're a physician, but you're running a business, and so you have to wear a couple of those hats. But when you when you layer in regulation and coding and admin and lawsuits and malpractice and all the other things that you face as a physician starts to separate you from the typical uh, mom and pop entrepreneur. And, you know, maybe healthcare perception or the perception of physicians has changed because out of necessity, I mean, they've had to become shrewd. They've had to become business people that are out to make money because everybody's trying to take money from them uh, from reimbursements uh, to lawsuits and so, or the dwindling reimbursements to lawsuits. And so, you know, we have to look at that too. It's, 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 um, it's a problem. And so. Mike, so um, 60 to 80% of doctors now are not going into private practice. They're going to be employed physicians and maybe, maybe, People like me are the crazy ones. We're the ones that are still trying to bang our heads on the wall and still make a margin and make a living. And we, trust me, I'm very blessed beyond belief, but to continue to try to fight the regulations and, and the world that exists now, you know, I have a daughter that's just got accepted into medical school. She starts med school this, this fall. I, I can't imagine she would go into private practice knowing what I know. I just don't think five, six years from now, or actually med school and residency, nine, 10 years from now, I don't even know. I, I hope that private practice exists and Ortho Alliance will allow us, you know, hopefully long-term to be in private practice, but whether or not as many private practices will exist, I, I, I doubt it. I doubt it. I, I just, it's just, it's, a, it's a, a battle that's really tough to fight. And that's why the majority of people now become employed and, and, I think their lives are easier. They literally can focus on being doctors. And if, you're, if your goal was primarily to be a doctor, then I think that's a great choice for you. But I also did have an entrepreneurial spirit and South Bend Orthopedics provided the ability for us to be entrepreneurs. And so I chose this group. I, I, you know, it was a wonderful group. Uh, but to be entrepreneurs is very tough. 
It, it is. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting you say about being able to focus on being a doctor if you're an employed doctor. But I've read some stats that physician-owned specialty hospitals or physician hospitals have much better outcomes than uh, than traditional hospitals. So I don't know what that means, but um, you know, there's got to be something to be said for that too. I, I think it means that if you allow doctors to be invo- involved in every step of the clinical pathway and allow doctors to cut out the waste in the system and allow doctors to choose things that we know will give good outcomes, I think that's why physician-owned facilities, um, surgeon-owned facilities for what I do, they do have higher rankings and higher, better outcomes and less. I mean, it's just, it's just because physicians that we are the ones that determine the clinical pathway. And if we are in ultimate control of it, I think patients do better. Not to say that large box hospitals have horrible outcomes. They don't, but we're talking a percentage point here or there. And our, our outcomes and our satisfaction are higher um, just because I think we're directly involved in the decision-making. So to uh, switch gears a little bit here, because yes. you mentioned something about technology earlier on in the conversation, um, there's a lot of talk about telemedicine. Uh, is there any, outside of it, uh, EMRs, is there any technology that you've seen recently that you're excited about? I think that in orthopedics specifically, um, the use of robotics um, is huge. And people, you know, I, I, um, the world thinks that robots are actually doing the surgery for the surgeon. That's not the case. I mean, the, the robots have the ability to make the margin of error in surgery much narrower. So for a very good surgeon, the robot makes him a degree better, a millimeter better. But let's just say for the average surgeon, it allows the the zone of error to be smaller. So I think robots are here. They're here to stay. Patients ask for them. Pa- people ask for them. They ask for the name of the robot, the specific robot. Um, so patients are savvy, and, and I think they should ask for them because the results um, are slightly better with robots. I think it's been proven. The outcomes are better. The surgical times are are, are less. The efficiency is better. Just Overall, there, there is definite improvement, especially in joint replacement and spine. And in the world of neurosurgery, as well as general surgery, robots are, are vital. Um, and then technology, people think of technology as computers and implants and stuff like that. But the world of orthobiologics, um, um, using, um, I do believe, stem cell um, research, stem cells, um, biologic factors, those are things that can enhance recovery and enhance healing. So I think the technology and the science behind orthobiologics is huge in, in, in what I do. So I've been a firm believer in orthobiologics. So that is here to stay. And I think as companies invest more money in biologics, I think that uh, we'll give patients uh, better outcomes. And, um, and the other thing is um, we invested in a, in a company and we created a startup company there is, there is also technology to help us analyze our data more quickly in a more rapid manner so that we can prove outcomes. And so I think that um, healthcare you know, groups and private practice groups, and hopefully, and I know with Ortho Alliance, the technology of analyzing data is better and, and it's more rapid. I was talking to, when we formed a startup with a, a private, another private equity company, I said, well, tell me 
you know, our, our goal was to combat, you know, just um, insurance denials and things like that. I, I said, so if we have people that um, process a denial, process a claim, and we have one person, how long does it take them to analyze and process a denial? He said, a couple hours. I said, well, with your analytics and your computers and your artificial intelligence, how many claims can your computers and AI do? He said, as many as it needs to, thousands in two hours. So that technology has me excited. So yep. um, that that is to come. And I think that may be one of the saving graces of private practice. Um, so we'll see. Um, um, those are, I think those are the technology things. But man, are the, the technology that's going to be out there um, 10, 15 years from now, I, I never thought I'd see half of the stuff that I see now. I can't wait to see what happens 20 years from now. It will be amazing. And that's what makes American well, medicine and worldwide medicine unbelievable because just the leaps and bounds that occur every decade are unbelievable. So, yeah, I was, uh, you know, technology and there's a lot of analog with healthcare. So, you know, we talked a few months ago about some of the, the issues you're having with uh, your, your caller or your, uh, the, the call center. Us, your, yeah, your call yeah. center. And not be one, not be able to find employees to do it. And then just having like people wait on hold forever. And then you have a website where you could schedule things, but a lot of your patient base isn't comfortable booking on the internet. They want to talk to somebody. They want to make sure that, you know, they might be driving an hour. They want to make sure that they've really got their appointment. So there's all this things that you can't really solve for necessarily in the technology. And so there's this analog part of healthcare, but, um, you know, that, when you get into the real technical side of things, it's really amazing. And maybe like this chat GPT that's out there can help with some of this stuff. Cause I've talked to other physicians about this call center stuff and it's like, it's so basic, but it's so important. Um, and, you know, I'm just curious about uh, telemedicine, which I mentioned earlier, you know, as a real, as a real estate developer and owner of medical office buildings, we sometimes get questions from our capital partners or investors, you know, how is telemedicine, disrupting space and the need for space. And I'm just curious to see what you think of tel telemedicine and how it plays a role and whether or not that's really a, uh, a condenser of actual medical office space that's needed, or it's just another uh, amenity of, of having a medical office building that you're in. I, I think that that's a, I think it's exactly the opposite of what your, uh, your partners are concerned about. I think that what telemedicine does is it decompresses as my it decompresses my live office visits so i put more office visits in so i think it's the opposite i i i think that what telemedicine at least in my surgical specialty and in my group it allows us to see more patients in fact uh, you know i think it decompresses you know the office space and allows us to see more so i don't think it changes our space utilization whatsoever um but that being said, for me, telemedicine, I don't know how to diagnose a medical problem without actually laying my eyes on someone. Can you imagine, you know, I, I do telemedicine all the time because I take care of people that go back to college, at, you know, in the community or the city that they're in. And when I'm talking to someone, I said, hey, how's your surgery doing? And they go, see right here, the scar is right here. I, I, I just don't like practicing medicine like that. So I don't, I, I, I'm not a big fan of telemedicine. But I do believe that it it provides in, in many cases for people that need 
um, chronic healthcare management for diabetes, blood pressure, and their physicians can talk to them and educate them more. Um, I think it's good. So there is a place for telemedicine, but from a medical, and you know me, I, I do enjoy the medical real estate type stuff. It's not changing our need for space. I think that it, it allows doctors to be even more productive. So we still need our space. Uh, good, you good. Know. Yes. And we're, we, we are trying, as you know, we need to find more space and build more space and expand into space. So I don't think anything's changing about that. It's not like um, it's not like, you know, a business like a, a stockbrokers or people in the financial industry. They don't necessarily need space because they found that they can function without space. We need space. Good. Music to my ears. <laughs> uh, so and you've been a great tenant, by the way. You pay on time. Yes. Uh, we have a $50 per day late fee. And so far, Perfect. you haven't hit it. Perfect. So it's great. Awesome. I was going to ask you about. Uh, I heard a stat today uh, about hospital systems. So in 2019, Moody's and S&P had uh, hospital systems and healthcare facilities as the lowest risk for bond defaults. In 2020, it ticked up a little bit. In 2021, it came back down. In 2022 and 2023, hospital and healthcare systems and facilities are one of the highest risks for defaults. And the stat they I heard today is- risk. One of the highest, one of the highest risks for default. Now that lumps in every hospital system. So that could be critical access hospitals. That could be rural hospitals. It could be some of the big systems, the not-for-profits, the for-profits. So it's everybody. The stat I heard today though, was that 53% of hospital systems are experiencing a significant cash crunch and significant operational uh, financial deficiencies. And so you're close, uh, obviously you're independent practice, but you're close, I imagine, to a lot of hospital system executives and people in your industry. And I'm just wondering if you've heard a lot of consternation from hospital system CEOs or C-suites about what they're facing and the challenges that they're facing right now. I think that what you just described is exactly what I've heard from my friends in that business. I I, I can't believe or I can't begin to understand why I, I think that change has occurred over many short years, but it's certainly it's a workforce problem. It's a volume problem. It's a, maybe a, a financial discipline problem. I think it's multifactorial. But if you step into a hospital, you will realize that if they're not doing the volume they need, um, that's a lot of bills to pay. And um, but the other thing is, and, and it's truly a trend in healthcare. That's a that's a that's a real trend. Is things are moving away from the hospital as much care as people can get outpatient through telemedicine, through frequent visits to their to their primary care physician, um, outreach clinics. The the world is trying to um, go around hospital care, and I think it part of it is cost. But I also think it's very efficient to meet people in their community, meet them on telemedicine, meet them in the office, and um, it with better with better population health, pop health, and preventative health care. I, I think hospitals maybe are uh, not as necessary. They're still very necessary for certain procedures, certain patients, and high risk things, and certain specialties. Um, uh, but things are going outpatient. Things are going. Uh, outpatient surgery centers, outpatient healthcare. So yeah, and we're, it's not we're surprising. No, and and you know you got you have to 
look at what CVS is doing with Village MD and what yes. Amazon is doing with One Medical and go, well, those guys are pretty smart and they've got a lot of money and they chose to spend a lot of it on healthcare. And so being where the patient lives, works and shops, you know, we've seen this retailization of healthcare where it's not on campus, it's off campus, it's the hop and smoke bottle, but it's really, let's be somewhere where there's a big patient base and we know they're shopping there. We know there there's restaurants nearby. It might be in a CVS. It might be in a strip center. It might be an outlet to a, a power center. You know, let's give people options so they're not coming onto our campus. And, you know, primary care is a huge driver for your business, I imagine. Uh, and it's going to be a big driver for a lot of other specialties. But, you know, you touch on something and I'm not sure if we have time to get really into this. Uh, because it's a super, super deep hole. But, you know, looking at the root of the issue with healthcare in America and the, the fact that it's $4 trillion and it's 18 plus percent of our GDP, you know, why is it? And you got to be honest and say it's because a lot of Americans are unhealthy. And is it access to healthcare? Is it insurance? Is it is it reimbursements? Is it all this stuff? But we've got to figure out a way that Everybody can get healthcare and we can start preventing some of these longer term issues that are causing a lot of this cost, which then trickles down to a lot of other things in the system. And so um, that's that's for another podcast. But um, I, I really want to thank you for your time. Uh, it's been great. I don't know if there's anything else that, you, that you've got on your notes that you'd like to cover. I, I you know, we, we've talked about this. What What is the one thing that I think could be improved about healthcare. I mean, it's certainly access, it's certainly insurance issues, it's facility issues, it's this and that. But if we could get back to making the patient the focus, the focus of healthcare, but also the providers also need to be a focus and making sure that we have good, healthy, strong providers and a provider base to take care of patients and take care of patients well. I think that's part of what's been missing. It's always, it, it's definitely been about patient care, patient experience, but man, providers also need a decent experience and decent happiness and life satisfaction to continue working very hard. And I mean, and if we don't solve for the physician burnout problem, healthcare will decline. And you think access is bad now. I mean, what happens if just 20% of physicians just drop out of healthcare and do something else. So I hope that well, we can bring back the focus to providers too. Well, you know, there has to be some parity in healthcare and providing care to people that need it. I mean, if you've ever been sick, you realize how important healthcare is. And yes. I'm, I'm a capitalist, but I have empathy. And if you can't afford healthcare, there should still be a way for you to get it. I 100% uh, agree live in America, with you. We live in America. There's no reason why we can't provide healthcare to people that need it. But there has to be a capitalism side to healthcare as well, where you have physicians that are effectuating amazing outcomes. You need to reward those people for doing it. And if physicians aren't, then they shouldn't get as much of a reimbursement. And so there's got to be a business side of healthcare. And there's got to be a healthcare side of healthcare, uh, and so you know, hopefully, with conversations like this and with people like you, we can we can effectuate some of that kind of change in the industry. Um, so yeah, I think we I've solved listened. all the problems today. Well, maybe one percent of them, but we definitely talked about a lot of them. I, I, this was awesome. I, I hope we can do it again. Yeah, I me think too. It, this is the type of stuff that affects change. 
So I agree with you. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And uh, enjoy the rest of your Basil Hayden's. It's and almost I, gone. <laughs> I, will, yeah. I will make sure that I link all of your education, which by the way is lengthy. Let me just show the audience here. This is just the first page. Second oh, no. page. Oh and no. Look at look at all these bullet points of speaking engagements and papers written. All kinds it's, of good it's, stuff. It's it's just a resume stuffer. I was told to put a lot of stuff down. It's impressive. <laughs> well, it will all be in the show notes. And you are very Thank impressive. You. Thank Thanks, you Mike. for everything, Thank Dr. Mencius, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care.